You look ready. Let's jump in. John chapter 13. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to be camping out in the first half of that chapter. And uh, I just want to really encourage you this morning. Um, if you haven't before, uh, take the message home and take a few minutes or an hour or however long it takes you during the week to really try to digest the message. And we provided a little community groups insert full of questions and uh, do them on your own, but hey, jump into a community group. Contact Patrick. Let us know if you need help connecting with others because you and I cannot grow outside of the context of community. Growth happens in community. Life is in the community, not outside of the community. So I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, we'll start today with a story about a book, actually, called The Living Unknown Soldier. It's called The Living Unknown Soldier. The author of that book tells us the story of Oct Octave uh, Monois. And he was a French soldier returned from German captivity in World War II, after World War II, and he was found wandering the streets of Lyon, France, and he was picked up by authorities, and he bounced around from asylum to asylum because nobody could figure out who he was. He totally had amnesia, either by the trauma of the war or uh, by some kind of uh, battle that he trauma and battle that he had experienced, but he could not remember himself. Not only could not could he not remember his own identity, but Monois could also not remember what he did yesterday. So he would have to start fresh every single day. Finally, a family claimed him and took him home. And what they discovered is that he was he could not live on purpose. He could not hold a job. He couldn't do anything because he had no continuity with the past. And when you have no continuity with who you were, you can't know who you are. And when you don't know who you are, you don't know what you're supposed to do. You don't know where you're supposed to go. And what John is going to remind us in this text today, he's going to remind us of this. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows who he is, and your and my identity, our security is found in him. And I wonder sometimes if Christians struggle with spiritual amnesia, just a kind of state of just not knowing who God has made you, where you have come from, who he has made you, and where you're going. So John is going to encourage us with those words today. His main thought, his main idea is that Jesus is glorified <clears throat> in his suffering, by his suffering service for humanity. And we are to Im imitate, emulate his model of humble service and sacrifice, his sacrificial love for others. So, th so the giving of his life on the cross is going to be the model of the Christian life. And we're going to learn how today. The Passover setting, uh, we're at, again at another feast. John is just focused on these feasts. Just so you know, the Gospel of Luke is really more focused on Jesus' dinners. So, yeah, we did a series uh, through the Gospel of Luke about a year and a half or a couple years ago. And the Gospel of Luke is really fix, fixated on Jesus. Ever so often, he would have these dinners with the Pharisees in their homes. But John just, he already knows you have that. So what John wants to do is show you how, what Jesus was like in the high festivals of Judaism. And what he was like when he got there. And now we're moving into a 
section of his ministry that's really toward the end. The rest of, the, the rest of this book is going to have to do with the end of Jesus' life, the last days of his life. And John wants to give us an intimate portrait of what it was like to sit in the room over dinner with Jesus and have Jesus talk to you and tell you what his final instructions are. And so chapters 14 through 17 is what we call, uh, those chapters are what we call the farewell discourse, uh, which is kind of sad. But this is John telling us this is what it was like to sit and listen to Jesus give us his last instructions, his last teachings, and give us our marching orders and tell us goodbye. But it won't be forever. Now, this dinner is the dinner before that. This is the Last Supper before the Last Supper. So, so that's what we're dealing with here. In uh, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And so here's what we're going to learn in this passage. The first thing is this. We find our security and our identity in Christ. Let's pick it up with 2 through 5. Verse 2 says this. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So there's that identity deal. Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he came from, from eternity with the Father. He knew that in this life, the Father had put all things under his power and that he was going back through the route of the cross through the cross, back to the Father, to be glorified with the Father. Verse 4, So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. And so verse 3 tells us that Jesus knew his power, he knew his origin, and he knew his destiny. Jesus was a man who was completely secure in himself. I want to say that again. Jesus was a man who was completely secure in himself. Have you ever met somebody that's just totally comfortable in their own skin? Totally comfortable. Why? Because they know who they are. They know what they're about. They know where they've come from. And Jesus is that kind of man, totally, totally secure in himself. Why is this important? Well, because Jesus' kingship... His lordship is in contrast to the Herodian dynasty. So you've got the Herodian family. Starts out with granddad or grandpa before Jesus was born, this guy named uh, Antipater. Antipater then had Herod the Great. And the Herod the Great had several sons who were all vying for the helm of Israel's destiny, right? Control over Israel and control over Samaria and Galilee. So you have Archelaus, you have Agrippa. Uh, you, so you have Philip, and you have all these tetrarchs, these kings, and here's the deal. Here's what you need to know about them. They were completely, historians tell us they were completely and totally insecure about their position for two reasons. One, because they were Idumean. They were not full-blooded Jews. Two, because they were not from the, from the tribe of Judah. They were not descendants of David. And so they felt this need to prove themselves both to Rome that they had a legitimate right to rule under Rome, and they felt this need to prove themselves to the Jewish people. And everyone hated them. No one liked them. 
the, the pagans didn't like them because they weren't pagan enough. They were too Jewish. And the Jews didn't like them because they were too pagan. And so now Jesus, despite this sort of environment of insecurity, and this insecurity would cause these people to do crazy things to each other. They would kill each other. Uh, did you know that Herod the Great murdered some of his sons, his brother? Uh, they would intermarry to make allegiances and alliances. I mean, it was a crazy time. And so here is King Jesus, a man who knows where he's come from. A man who knows that he was with the Father in eternity and he shared the same glory that the Father had in eternity and who has now come and all power and authority is put under his feet. And a man who is on his way through the cross back to being glorified with the Father. So you could not sit in the presence of a person who is more secure about himself. And there is something about the transference, the transfer of his security to you. Because when you know who he is, and you are in him, you know who you are. Our identity is found in him. So I think it's safe to say that Jesus was comfortable in his own skin. Look at verse 4. It says, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Anybody who is comfortable with himself and his authority and his power feels absolutely no threat to their authority or power to serve you. They feel no threat or, to their authority or power. Because they know, they're, they know they're not going to lose it. And so Jesus does the unthinkable. He actually serves his disciples. Why is this important? Because foot washing was only done by servants. It was only done by household slaves. So if you were a Pharisee or you were one of the Sanhedrin or one of the high priests, you could have like a household servant. And if somebody like Jesus came to your house and they were your honored guest, as soon as they walked in the door... Your, the servant would come and take their sandals, untie their thongs, take their sandals off, and then take a basin with water and a towel and wash that person's nasty feet, right? And this was just a custom. If you didn't have a servant and you did have children, what else do you have them for, you know? It's the, you know. Or you had a wife. They had the same role in this world of washing the master's feet. Now, this is important. Here's why. Because Jesus does this symbolically. Now, Jesus didn't do this every time they sat down to dinner. They had never seen Jesus do this before. This is a symbol. What is it a symbol of? Well, firstly, it is a symbol of his condescension from eternity past to human form. All of God, all that God is, the fullness of the deity, divesting. Notice it says he took off his outer robe. What robe is that? It's his rabbinic robe. It's his robe of authority in this culture. He takes off this uh, robe which signifies his high standing among these disciples. He disrobes himself, divests himself of this, and puts on the form of a servant, a slave. And so this is now an illustration of Jesus coming from heaven to earth, divesting himself of his heavenly glorious form, pouring all the fullness of deity into bodily form, found in appearance as a man. But it's also symbolic of the way the disciples are supposed to treat each other. So it works on two levels. One to tell us who Jesus is. One to show us an indelible, indelible image of Christ coming and condescending to us, his creatures, his people, to serve us by death and resurrection. And also to show us this is the way of the Christian life. This is the way of the Christian life. So who are you? Do you know who you are? 
The Bible tells you who you are. The first thing the Bible tells us is that we're forgiven saints. We're forgiven saints. Do you know you're a forgiven saint? I'm perfectly okay if you refer to yourself as a sinner saved by grace. I do that sometimes, but Paul didn't do that. Paul never referred to people that way. When Paul wrote the Ephesians, here's what he said. To the church, the saints in Ephesus. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he said to the church, the saints in Corinth. Why did he do that? Because he did not want them to forget where they had come from. He did not want them to forget the heights from which or uh, they had fallen into sin and God had raised them up, right? He didn't want them to forget that, but he wanted them to identify with Christ, in Christ. That is to be our defining orientation. The word saints is the word hagioi. Know what that word means? It means holy ones. It literally means the holy people. That's what it means. And you don't have to perform a miracle or live a perfectly pious life to attain sainthood. The Bible teaches that all of us are saints in Christ. You are holy because Christ has set you apart and you are in Christ. So you are a forgiven saint. Do you think of yourself that way? Now, you probably didn't think of yourself as a saint if you had an argument with your spouse this week and you were one of the guilty parties. You know, you probably didn't think of yourself that way. You probably wouldn't think of yourself as a saint if you had a, a really terrible, raunchy, lustful thought towards someone this, this week that you had to repent of. You probably wouldn't think of yourself as a saint. But positionally, that's whom God has made you. God has forgiven you of your sins and set you apart as a holy one for him. Here's the second thing the Bible tells us is that you and I are loved beyond words. You and I are loved beyond words. How do we know this? Well, here's how we know this. Because we know that God, the God of the universe, could have writ large the fact that he loves you in the stars. <laughs> God, you know, like you go out on a starry night and you see the Big Dipper. Isn't it fun the first time you show your kids that? And then they see it? That's so fun. What if, what if you took your kids outside and showed them, there, see, that's where it says, I love you, written in the constellations, right? God could have done that. God could have etched it in every cell in your body so that when you look in a microscope or a geneticist uh, from 23andMe looks at your cells and they go, oh, wow, it says that God loves this person. He could have done that. But he did not do that. Because God didn't just tell us that he loves us. He could tell us all day. He showed us. Romans 5 says he demonstrated his love for us while we were still dead in our sins. How? Christ's death on a cross. So God does not just tell us that he loves us. God demonstrates his love for us. He actually shows us the fullest extent of his love. And that love was designed to be received and reciprocated. You know it's the most natural thing in the world for a little child to receive and reciprocate love? I, I am the, I, I'm a verbal guy. Like in our house, I tell my little kids all the time, I love you. And when they were little, man, they were like, love you, daddy. <laughs> you know. But now that they're teenagers, like, shut up. <laughs> right? I mean, literally, that's what I hear. But it doesn't matter. My big boys now, you know, I have a 19-year-old and I have a big, burly 17-year-old and I walk up behind them and grab them and kiss them on the face and they're like, shut up, stop, dad, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> now, it doesn't matter for a time that they're rejecting my love 
That doesn't matter. Because they were designed, their little hearts, their little minds, their psyche, their emotions, they were designed to receive my love and reciprocate my love. Someday it'll come back to me. I believe that by faith. They were designed that way. And I really never had to tell them that I loved them that much. All I had to do was get down on the floor and play with them. I mean, the secret to this is presence. Being present. Being there. And this is what Jesus did. This is what God did. God wanted to say, I love you. And my words, anything I would say to you to convey that to you could not possibly convey the depths of my love for you. So I'm going to show you. I'm going to come down on the floor, and you're going to see the full extent of my sacrificial love. You are loved beyond measure. You are loved beyond words, not just tolerated. I tolerate my dog, Oliver. (laughs) And you can tell. You can totally tell. Like when my kids and my wife come home... (laughs) It's funny. When my kids and my wife come home, we all come through the garage, and he can hear the garage door open, right? He can hear it. So I'll come in behind them, because I'm shutting everything up, and his little tail is wagging, and his little tongue is out, and, he's, and as soon as he sees them, he's all over them. But if I come home for lunch, his tail is wagging, and his tongue is out, and as soon as I walk through the door, his tail stops, and he looks at me and is like, oh, it's just you. And I mean, literally, he just goes back in the room and lays down. Why? Because even though he can't understand the words from my children's heart, that little dog was designed by God to receive and reciprocate love. And he knows when he's just tolerated. He knows. I don't know how he knows. He just knows. And you do too. And God doesn't just tolerate you. God loves you deeply more than his words could possibly say. This is why he sent the son. Also, you have eternal worth and value. <clears throat> I can't stand a worship song that talks about how worthless we are. I've instructed Daniel not to sing those songs because it's false theology. It's false theology. You're not worthless. Now, you have no worth or no value in of yourself. There's nothing you could do to earn worth and value. You can't make yourself more lovable or valuable to God. You can't do that. But you have eternal value and worth. And you have it because he decrees it. You have it because he wills it. His sovereign decree has said, you are the zenith of my creative activity. Of all of the things, the greatest constellations I have ever created in the universe, the greatest solar systems, the largest, most exquisite black holes, the most beautiful thing you could find in the sea or on earth, you are the pinnacle. You're the zenith of my creative work because you bear my image. And God says, you are worth the death of his son. That's how much he values and loves us. Your life, your struggles, your hopes, your dreams, your character development, your eternal destiny. You matter to God. What you care about, what you dream about, what you're afraid of. Everything in your heart and in your mind, God thinks about you often. He thinks about you every day. You matter to him. You're not worthless. Next, you are destined for the unspeakable glories of heaven. We haven't even got to the best part yet. 
But just imagine, we said this last week. If you missed that message, please go back and watch that. The last time you breathe, the last breath that comes out of your lungs and your mouth, in the moment that you close your eyes, the last time you will be ushered immediately into the high beams of the glory of his presence. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He did not say to be absent from the body is to be wandering around like a ghost and haunting people. I kind of want to do that for just a little while. Because there's some people I want to come back and haunt. Not in this room. But the scripture says to be absent from the body, which means when you die, your soul, your spirit, yourself, the real you that it's inhabiting this machinery, you will depart and go be in the presence, the immediate full beam of God's presence. And if you're a believer here today, you have that assurance. You don't have to wonder about it. You don't have to guess about it. You don't have to, you know, play, play the odds. You don't have to do any of that. You can be assured that you will be with Christ because you're in Christ, Right? And you're destined for that. But I got one better for you. We talked about it last week. You are promised new creation. You are promised new creation. More than the glories of heaven. Look, you were not designed to be a floating disembodied apparition. You and I were designed to live a bodily life. And God is a brand new heavenly spiritual body for you. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look. You and I, in the twinkling of an eye, we read this passage last week. The trumpet will sound, and you and I will be transformed into a brand new resurrected bodily life. It's such a great, and then, and then God has destined us for new, the new heavens and the new earth. So new creation is coming, and you and I will live with him forever. So Jesus was comfortable in his own skin because he knew where he came from, from eternal glory, he knew where, where he was going, and he knew who he was. And you and I find our identity is grounded, founded, rooted in him. Number two, we cannot experience the cleansing, healing, power, forgiveness unless we surrender to Christ. So we, you cannot be Christ's and have that identity and the security of that identity if you don't follow this step. And Peter's going to illustrate this for us, okay? Look at what it says here. Where are we at? Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter. Now he's washing feet. He's not supposed to be doing this. He's the high master, right? And so he's coming to his apprentices, his disciples. He came to Simon Peter and, said, and Simon Peter said to him, Lord, master, which means master. Adonai means my Lord. Are you going to wash my feet? Now, in Greek, that is not a question. That is a sentence with an interrogative tone. What it says in Greek is, you are going to wash my feet? I don't think so. And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter. <laughs> Peter's bold. No, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, uh, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have already had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and, and you are already clean, though not every one of you is. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not every one of them was clean. So what is he doing with Peter? What, what is Peter's challenge? Masters never take a genuflecting posture with a student. In this world, a master was an 
honored person. And the, and the greater the master, the greater the honor. And honor was a big deal in this culture. And it was shameful. It was publicly shameful for a high master. A master, it was shameful for them to get down on their knees or take any kind of genuflecting position or posture with their students, with their apprentices. You just don't do this. This is why Peter is just balking here. This is why he just can't handle this. He says, no, this is not the way things ought to be. You don't know your place, Jesus. It's him who doesn't know his place. Now, many of the streets in Herod's economy were not paved. Rome's had a lot of paved streets, but Herod did not. So his streets were dusty, and not just dusty in this very arid and dry world, but they were full of sheep and dogs and cattle. And so you can imagine on occasion when you come to someone's home, not only are your sandals, your feet just totally caked in dirt, but you have stepped in some things that you probably shouldn't step in. And if there was a camel nearby, that marketplace that you've just walked through, the camel is unclean. And so for a high master, a rabbi like Jesus, to touch your sandals when you might have this unclean dung or excrement from this, these animals would be totally inappropriate. And so this is why Peter is saying, you can't do this. This would defile you. And what Jesus is saying is this, if you don't let me serve you and clean you, you can't have communion with me. It's an illustration. Jesus is the master illustrator. What Jesus is saying is, if you don't allow me to do this act for you, and then Peter says what? Well, then, well, then wash my whole body then. And Jesus says, what are you talking about, you baby? What are you, a baby? Did you, did you have a bath this morning? Did you wash yourself before you left this morning? Jesus, this is a symbolic act. Jesus is saying, Peter, I must wash your feet symbolically. You must understand what I am doing. And so we cannot experience the cleansing, healing, power of forgiveness if we do not allow Jesus to cleanse us. And how is a person cleansed? How are they? John tells us in his letter. Not the gospel, but in his letter, 1 John 1, 6 through 10, he says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and, and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and the truth is not in us. What is he saying here? First things first. If you're going to be cleansed by Jesus, you got to confess what is true about you. And anybody who is not willing to confess that they are a sinner that they are far from God and do not meet his holy, righteous, perfect standard. Look, if eating a piece of fruit, which is the most innocuous thing I can think of, was an affront, an infinite affront to his holiness, then you better believe that I have sinned against God before I came to Christ. You better believe it, because I've done a lot worse than eating fruit. What is the issue? The issue is not the fruit. It's the command of God. 
God has issued us an obligation. We have failed to meet the obligation. You and I have fallen short of his glory. We've fallen short. And I'm telling you, as I, every week when I watch the news or I watch TV, here's what I see. You know what I see? I see a bunch of people who are not willing to admit that they are sinners. And anytime anyone says, well, I was just born this way. Look, I don't care what, whatever justification you try to use for every craven, lustful, wanton desire of your heart, it doesn't make it right. And God says, unless you are willing, you and I are willing to come to the foot of the cross and admit what is true. We are broken and we are lost. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to wash, wash you clean. But if you don't, you are self-righteous. You're worse than the Pharisees. You're in the same category. It doesn't matter whether you're a religious person or a Bible thumper or not. You could be the most secular, atheistic person and still be a Pharisee. Because you think that your activity, your sin, is justified. And so what John is telling us is very simply this. You and I must come to the foot of the cross. We must kneel. We must surrender. And we must start with confession of what is true about us. We are lost. We are far from God. Far from God. And then he says, we must walk in the light as he is in the light. What does he mean here? This isn't a command to perfectionism. Now, I hope all of you are perfect. It would make my life a lot easier. Uh, It would make my wife's life a lot easier if I were. Now, just because I know I never have been, and not until the resurrection of Jesus I ever will be perfect, or the resurrection at the end of the age that I will be perfect, here's the deal. I strive for it. I just try to walk according to the word. I try to walk in the light. But part of walking into the light is when you fall, you drag your sin, kicking and scratching and yowling into the light of the cross. You live a life of repentance. And repentance is not hiding your imperfections. Repentance is acknowledging them and saying, I turn away. I was going that way. I turn away and I'm going this way. Living in the light, walking in the light means that we confess what is true and we come into the light of the truth of the cross. And then he says that leads to fellowship, confession, the discipline of repentance and reliance upon Christ's all-sufficient work gives us a holy communion with the body, gives us fellowship. Now he tells us this, if you say you have no sin, here's the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you could ever do is tell God he's a liar. And that's what we do. That's what I do when I am not willing to own up to my stuff, man, and admit that I, that I have sinned. And God says, you, you're calling me a liar. And there are a lot of people in our culture today, we love them, we reach out to them, we welcome them into the community, community of grace and truth, but they're liars because they're trying to make God out to be a liar. And he's not. So Peter discovered that if Jesus did not do this for him, if Jesus did not cleanse him in this significant way, he would have no communion with the Lord. If Jesus doesn't wash you clean, you can't be clean. You can't be. Three, Christ's symbolic action is the norm for the Christian life. It's the norm for the Christian life. So we pick up here in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, it says he put on his clothes 
and return to his place. Let's just stop right there. So what did he do? So he takes off this honored rabbinic robe. He puts on the form of a servant, a slave. He washes their feet and he cleanses them. And when he's done, he puts back on his robe, his robe of authority. And what does he do? Then he returns to his place. Where's his place? The head of the table. Lord, now he's going to clarify. Do you not understand what I have done for you? They're like, oh, yeah, sure. And he asked them, uh, you call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so. I just love that line. You call me teacher and Lord. And of course, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one uh, who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do him. So there's a little cultural thing going on here that I want to show you. It's really quickly, um, the word disciple, by the time it was used in Jesus' day, was a very flexible term. So you could not look at the disciples of Plato or the disciples of Socrates or the disciples of Moses, we find those guys in the New Testament as well, or the disciples of John the Baptist, you could not look at any one of their forms of mastery and discipleship and say, that's what it is. In order to know how Jesus defines the term disciple, you have to look at his mastery. In other words, the term was flexible enough by Jesus' day that the master determined the form of the disciples' discipleship. Now, so this is unheard of in the ancient world. There's not another rabbi. There's not another leader. There's not another political person. No one in the ancient world has ever done this. This is a genuine singularity. This is something very unique to Jesus. Jesus says, this is the way it ought to be among you. Now, I have shown you what kind of master I am. I'm the kind of master who comes from heaven to earth to serve you. And in the same way, you are to serve one another. So the quality of his leadership becomes the content of the disciples' discipleship. I'll say it again. The quality of his leadership, the character of his leadership, becomes the content of the disciples' discipleship, their program. And this is what Jesus tells them. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and of course you do, because that is what I am. Jesus is the supreme teacher of God's people in the world. And he is the risen, or he is the exalted Lord. And so Jesus intentionally uh, humiliates himself in his condescension, in his incarnation. But he returns back to his place of authority. And then verse 15, he says, you should also, also wash one another's feet. So in this world where masters were greatly honored... And would not ever think of doing this. Jesus says, nope, this is to be the pattern of the Christian life. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. Here's what Paul says. Um, <clears throat> he says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but but each of you to the interest of others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here it is. Who being in very nature or form God, right? 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or exploited. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, how many times have I quoted this passage or heard this passage quoted in the context of teaching Jesus' sort of uh, equality with God, right? I've used it that way before, but notice the context. The context is relationships. What Paul is here's the context. Paul says, I want all of you to have the same mindset that was in Christ toward one another, which is get down off your high horse. In fact, don't ever even get up on your high horse. It doesn't matter what your position is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter uh, what your title is. None of that matters. What he says is, if the God of the universe, God the Son, could come down and pour the fullness of deity into bodily form, the form of a servant, a man, a criminal, dying on a cross, then I think you and I, (laughs) I think just maybe, we could treat each other with that kind of sacrificial love. So what John, what Jesus, what Paul is teaching us is this, is that Jesus' act of dying on a cross for us, that is what we call the cruciform life. The cruciform life just means a life that is formed after the pattern of sacrificial love. The sacrificial love that Jesus showed on the cross. And that's what we are to have for one another. And he says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. He doesn't say you'll be blessed because you know them. He doesn't say you'll be blessed because you can pass a pop quiz on them. He says, now you'll be blessed. You'll experience the blessed life because you do them, because you put them into practice. Just this last week, I'll tell on myself just this last week, uh, my wife uh, needed something done, and she didn't ask me. And uh, I'm sitting in my lazy boy chair after a long day of work, and I'm sitting there going, hmm, I could do that for my wife. (laughs) And just do it without her even asking me. And it would just bless her. Or I could sit here and be comfortable. And I want you to know, I thought about it for a long 10 minutes. And just as about as she was about to walk out of the door and go run this errand, now she's just been exhausted from chemotherapy this week. Just feeling really uh, upside down, exhausted. And I said, I said, hey, I got it. She's like, no, no, no. I go, honey, sit down, rest. I got it. And I got up, and I went, and I ran her errand, and I came back. And when I got back to the house, uh, she was sitting there just kind of asleep on the couch, and I just felt so good. Why? Because exactly as Patrick read this morning, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It, it really is. It is, so, it is such a blessing to love other people with the sacrificial love. Now, it cost me dearly some time in my lazy boy. <laughs> Rest that I, that I needed for the big game this Wednesday. <laughs> but, but I did it anyway. And I'm not telling you that to make myself the hero of the story. I'm telling you that ju- just to show you a very quick example of something all of us can do. And that is to just take the initiative. Take the initiative to serve the people around us selflessly. This is a cruciform life. This is a life formed after the pattern of the cross. This is a life that looks like Jesus dying for his people, for those whom he loved And this is what he encourages us to. I'm going to call our ushers up and our worship team, and we're going to get ready for communion this morning.
And I want you to prepare your hearts as well. This is a great time. Communion is a great time to recognize what Christ has done for us on the cross, in burial, and in resurrection. It's a great opportunity to confess our sins, to allow the Holy Spirit to turn the spotlights in on our hearts, to convict us of sin that we have harbored. It's a great opportunity for that. But more than that, folks, more than that, it is a great opportunity to see the cup and the bread as participation in the body. And this, it, the cup and the bread is supposed to not just symbolize what Christ did for us, but to symbolize the way of life that he has prescribed for us, that he has taught us to live this way for others, to die to self. Will you pray with me? Father, we just want to thank you for, for these elements. We want to thank you this morning that we get to freely come into a room like this. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for setting us free. And thank you that we can just allow your Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin. But Lord, also, will you, will you inspire us this morning to serve others sacrificially without grumbling or complaining, but to look like Christ on the cross when others need us. And God, we thank you for the opportunity to become more like you in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.